Let's stand together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 25, the book that we're studying on Sunday mornings. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them and they'll give you a Bible marked right to our passage this morning. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you this morning. Acts chapter 25. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against Paul, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, that they may lay an ambush along the road to kill him. Uh, it's a nice, uh, nice church to get involved in. Uh, and, uh, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. And therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man and see if there's any fault in him. And when they had remained uh, among, uh, when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went back to Caesarea and the next day sitting in the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious accusations against Paul, which they cannot, uh, could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. After some days, King Agrippa, with Bernice, his sister, they came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had uh, been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before uh, the accused meets the accusers face to face and has an opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. And therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I would have supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus whom, uh, had, who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willi- willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to, uh, to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until he should be sent. Uh, I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear uh, the man myself. 
Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And so the next day, verse 23 is very significant. For the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was then brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the entire assembly of the Jews uh, petitioned me, uh, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. Uh, here's my problem. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after my examination has taken place, I may have something to write in terms of a charge against him, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. Verse 26, before your heart sink, it's just one verse. Uh, then Agrippa said to him, uh, to Paul, you are uh, permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the broad diversity of it, the epistles that are here, the Psalms, uh, the law of Moses, the gospels, these narrative passages like we're reading here this morning. And uh, Lord, we realize that not a single word in your book is wasted. All of it is important to you to teach us something and to further conform us into the image of Christ and to know the peace and the freedom that comes with that continual conforming of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would meet with us and continue to meet with us in this room now as our worship shifts from worshiping you in song to now worshiping you in the study of your word. And Lord, that you would be exalted in our hearts as we study your word. And Lord, that you would make your word alive and applicable to our individual circumstances today and also to your calling upon our lives as citizens of this kingdom, Lord, uh, to stand and to witness and testify of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we remember Paul's uh, present circumstances. We come here now to chapter uh, 25. He has been held as a prisoner by a Roman governor by the name of Felix now for two uh, long years and uh, in the city of Caesarea. And he's been held a prisoner for those two long years, essentially in order to appease the religious Jewish uh, uh, leaders. Uh, he has shared the gospel with Felix in Drusilla, uh, his wife, as we noted last week. And Felix, following that uh, gospel presentation to him, he continued to hold Paul beyond it uh, for those two years, as we've mentioned. At the end of the, those two years, Felix was replaced as the Roman governor of that section of the Roman Empire that involved uh, the oversight of Jerusalem and the southern part of, of uh, Judea, that uh, he was replaced uh, as a leader uh, by a man by the name of Festus, who was introduced to us here uh, in this passage. So you've got Felix, you've got Festus, 
Uh, Felix is going out. Festus is uh, coming uh, in. The charge, uh, the change occurs here uh, concerning Felix uh, because he, with what was a customary kind of ruthlessness and cruelty, an uprising or a riot had uh, occurred in the city of Caesarea, the capital of that province of the Roman Empire, uh, very much a Roman city made up of Jews and Gentiles. But a conflict occurred between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, it became violent. Felix then put that uh, kind of the conflict and, and hostilities down uh, with a, a great uh, show of force against the Jews. Many, many thousands of Jews within the city were either killed or they were imprisoned or they were stripped of their wealth. This was contrary to all Roman law, and so a delegation of Jews, of course, made their way from Jerusalem and Caesarea, made their way to the city of Rome, protested Felix's actions to Caesar himself. Caesar called Felix to be sent back to Rome where he was then uh, stripped of his position as the governor and uh, barely escaping with his life. As we mentioned last week, only his brother Paulus, his intercession kept him from being executed for what he had done in violation of uh, what Rome stood for in terms of law and order. And Festus was now sent in order to kind of clean up the mess that Felix had made of that uh, corner of of the Roman uh, Empire. And uh, so this morning I'd like us just to do a kind of a brief uh, look at an overview of the passage here and then to finish with what I think is an important devotional application uh, that comes uh, from it. Historians tell us concerning Festus that he was a uh, much more uh, uh, commendable human being and a much more competent leader uh, than Felix uh, ever was. And we see it certainly here uh, in the narrative. He's portrayed as being very, very conscientious, very uh, hardworking, straightforward, no nonsense. Everything about the passage uh, communicates that ab about him. And he comes on the scene there in that province and he immediately sets forth to now restore uh, law and order and justice to uh, this province that uh, has become very, very corrupt and, and dangerously unstable as a result of it. In verse 1, we see that upon arriving uh, in the province, he travels from Jerusalem or Caesarea uh, to Jerusalem. He doesn't spend it virtually any time, just three days in Caesarea. You would think as he would come from Rome, that he would settle into Caesarea, get familiar with the city, get comfortable with it, enjoy all of the pleasures that are found there, have team meetings with whatever his leadership team is there or any of it. But it ha he has no interest in that at all. He realizes that his greatest concern in terms of keeping this part of the Roman Empire stable does not center in Caesarea, but it centers in Jerusalem because that was the headquarters and, and the center for uh, the Jews, and the Jews made up the, the most uh, significant portion of the population that, that he was ruling over. And so he makes a beeline, and, and it's wonderful to see it, a man this conscientious, a beeline to Jerusalem in order to meet with the Jewish religious leaders uh, there. Very, very wise man in his prioritizing here. While he's in Jerusalem, we're told in verses 2 and 3, he's reapproached 
by the Jewish religious leaders concerning Paul. Uh, and Paul has been in custody for two years. They have not lost sight of him. They want him dead as much as they wanted him dead and attempted to assassinate him uh, two years uh, earlier. And so they requested, verse 2, that Festus, uh, of Festus, that Paul would, uh, he would send Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem in order to be uh, tried. It does appear that the Jewish religious leaders are trying to take advantage of his uh, inexperience in terms of understanding uh, the uh, uh, kind of the territory of Israel. And so the idea is that he will then bring Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem and think, well, what's the harm in doing something like this and not realizing how volatile a part of the Roman Empire uh, Israel was and that these men were intent not upon justice in, in asking Paul to come to Jerusalem and to be tried there, but their intention was uh, to murder him, to assassinate him uh, on the way, as we're told in verse 3. The situation's even worse after two years. Two years earlier, when the 40 assassins committed themselves to not eating or drinking Jewish assassins, that they were not going to eat or drink until Paul was dead, this was just 40 uh, men among the Jews. And then they put their... Uh, presented their plan to the Jewish religious leaders and said, listen, why don't you call for Paul to be brought before you while they're taking him through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. We'll kill him before he ever gets to you. The Sanhedrin was only involved in that plot in so much as they requested Paul's presence. Here you have a situation two years later where they're not messing with underlings at all, uh, but the Jewish religious leaders themselves are now uh, willing to uh, take the knife in hand and uh, to uh, assassinate Paul uh, and do the dirty work themselves. Paul, Festus's answer to the Jews in verses 4 and 5, he, he lets them know that Paul is going to be kept in Caesarea, and if they have any kind of an accusation against Paul, they would need to come to Caesarea and accuse him there face to face. Again, this is a commendable decision by Festus. This is all in accordance with uh, Roman law. In verse 6 here, uh, upon Festus's return to Caesarea, some 10 days later, he spends a, a lengthy period of time getting oriented and meeting with uh, people in, in Jerusalem. As he returns now to Caesarea, he is evidently uh, uh, accompanied by a, a large condition, contingent of religious Jews who are now uh, coming uh, to uh, have their way in terms of bringing their accusations against Paul sooner rather than later. Again, we see Felix is a, a no-nonsense, non-procrastinator, very deliberate, decisive human being. And uh, as soon as he arrives back in Caesarea, he doesn't say, well, let's take a week and think this thing over. He commences a trial for Paul uh, the very uh, next day. The trial itself is described there in verses 6 through 12. Paul was brought before Festus, brought before his accusers, as Festus declared is, uh, was the requirement of, of Roman law at the time. They bring their accusations against Paul, all that we're told, it's the same old, same old, and uh, they were just serious accusations, accusations that were intent upon uh, uh, receiving from Festus a, a death penalty to be meted out against 
against Paul. And so they bring forth many serious complaints. They have one big problem, and that is they can't prove any of their charges against Paul. There is a certain uh, kind of person in the world that is great at making accusations, uh, but they're not very good at uh, proving the accusations that they make. They're known as bloggers today. And uh, not all of them, but a significant portion of them. They have found their niche, uh, finally, or niche, and uh, in the world. And so uh, he, uh, this is what they're doing. Their desire is not for justice. Their desire is uh, for Paul's death. Paul, in verse 8, he answers the accusations by simply denying them. Uh, he had not, he said, violated the law of the Jews. He hadn't violated the temple. He hadn't violated or broken any Roman law. This evidently was the three-pronged uh, uh, series of charges they brought uh, uh, against him. And you notice as he declares there in verse uh, um, uh, 8, uh, the, the language that is used there as he talks about it, um, he, says, uh, he says, I have... Uh, nor against Caesar have I offended anything uh, at all. And so he, he declares himself to, to be in anything and at all, just a total uh, denial and dismissal of the charges. Felix's response in verse 9, he asked Paul if he's willing to go up to Jerusalem in order to be judged, he looks at it and he says, well, this is kind of a religious thing that's going on here. Maybe I ought to take it to the religious capital of the Jews and have, it try, have him tried there, and I can kind of get a, a greater clarity about just what, what it is that their complaint is. He's trying to find a political uh, path through all, all of this. How can I keep the Jews happy and yet render some kind of uh, justice here? Uh, to Paul. And so he asked Paul whether he's willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged according uh, to these things, uh, concerning these things. None of this makes any sense uh, at all because if they couldn't prove the accusations in Caesarea, how in the world were they going to uh, uh, prove the, the accusations against Paul by simply changing the geo geographical location in which the charges are being meted out against him? But again, we're told here in verse 9 that his reason for doing all of this plainly was he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And, uh, and here is the only place really in the entire thing where uh, Festus, he kind of falters here. Very commendable man, but he falters in, in the account. Roman law would have had that Paul would have been immediately uh, released at that point in time. And it was a mistake on Festus's part not to release Paul uh, from custody, custody immediately uh, it, 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 at this point in his uh, oversight of, of the province. And his failure to do the right thing here is going to blow up in his face. And like happens always when we fail to do the right thing at the right time, uh, that it only gets harder to do it uh, later. So life is going to be very, very uh, complicated for him. It is always the right time to do the right thing. Sometimes we, we all of us know what it is to be in Festus's position. Where we want to please both parties, what is the clear thing to do is the clear thing to do. But somehow at that moment in time, we think if we just kind of fudge on this and just buy a little bit of time, somehow it will all sort itself out. 
And uh, every once in a while it does, but most often it just gets more complicated and the problem just uh, gets, uh, gets bigger. The thing that's, I, I, one of the things I like about uh, all of this is that it, it really speaks to us, uh, even in this injustice of Festus that is meted out against, uh, against Paul, that even in all of this, God's providence is at work in the situation. God is ruling the situation. He's overruling the situation for his purposes related to uh, Paul's life. The fact of the matter is, is if that Festus had taken and released Paul at that moment from Roman custody in Caesarea, he would have been immediately killed in the city. Uh, there isn't anywhere he couldn't, uh, could have gone in, Jeruz- in, in all of Israel without ending up being assassinated by some uh, Jewish religious fanatic. And really, if he'd traveled anywhere into the Roman Empire where uh, the, the Jewish religious presence was, uh, somebody would have assassinated uh, him in, in his uh, travel. And so it is his, the fact that he is kept in custody that God said, uh, Jesus said to him, you're going to bear witness to me in Rome, even as you've done it in Jerusalem. He's going to end up in Rome, but he's going to end up in Rome, probably the only way he can end up in Rome in one piece, and that is in Roman custody. And so he remains a prisoner all the way the journey from Caesarea into uh, Rome, where he is not only in Rome going to bear witness to God in the gospel uh, before Caesar and before the household of Caesar, but he is, while imprisoned there, going to write some of the most precious epistles uh, and favorite epistles among Christians in all of the New Testament. They're known as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and then the pastoral uh, epistles. And so it is unjust. Injustices happen within our lives, but it never means that God's uh, plan for our lives, his ultimate goal related to our lives, is ever going to be, you know, ultimately and finally thwarted in any way. He overrules it. He did with Paul. He does with us as well. Paul then, in verses 10 and 11, he appealed to uh, Caesar's judgment seat. At that time, uh, if you were a Roman citizen and you felt that you were not receiving Roman justice and the at a local level, you had a right to say, I appeal my case to Caesar. And then that case would then go before the Roman Caesar uh, to be heard uh, there. And Paul here, he just, uh, uh, he, he not only appeals the case here, but in uh, verse 10, he openly rebukes Festus for knowing that he's innocent and failing uh, to apply the law uh, properly. And so Paul says, I'm not going to be used any longer. Two years is enough as a, uh, a pawn in this religious game that is, is going on. And Paul knew full well that if he got taken to Jerusalem, he would be assassinated. He knew that Festus was a newcomer to the neighborhood, didn't understand the danger of what was going on here. And so he just jumps over his head and says, I, I appeal uh, to, uh, to Caesar and then and now you know assuring that he's going to end up in Rome in order for that uh, to happen if uh, the and and so Paul knowing again the the neighborhood and the territory uh, appealed and then repeated his appeal to Caesar again in verse 11 Festus has a problem now and it's beginning to dawn on him a little bit 
and he uh, realizes what has happened here at this hearing. He confers with, uh, we're told here, his counsel in verse 12. These are kind of legal advisors that were also present. He was the ultimate judge, but he would ask them and say, well, what happens here? Well, according to Roman law, what's the deal? I mean, he wasn't the expert on Roman law. He was something of an expert, but not the expert. And so he confers with them, and he realizes, all right, this is what, uh, this is what the, you know, has to happen in a case like this. You've uh, appealed to Caesar, and to appear before Caesar related to this case, then to Caesar uh, you will go. Now, Felix, uh, he, uh, Festus, rather, he now has a, a very, very large problem, very embarrassing problem, because he uh, now has to send a prisoner to Rome for trial. But the prisoner hasn't been convicted of any kind of a crime. And so the, the prisoner hasn't done anything wrong, uh, anything, in Paul's words, anything at all. And uh, Festus realizes this. So can he send a note with uh, Paul saying, listen, according to Roman law, this man should have been set free by me, but I was desiring to kind of gain the favor of the religious Jews here in the province, and so I've thrown all Roman law uh, to the wind here, and now through my own incompetence, uh, Caesar, I make my problem your problem. Uh, no subordinate in the Roman Empire was interested in sending that kind of a letter along, but he realized that no matter what he did, this is what it would look like to Caesar. And Caesar, upon having Paul come before him without any charges, would ask uh, the inevitable question, and that is, what is the name of the idiot that we have overseeing that section of the Roman uh, Empire? Doesn't he know that he's supposed to take the weight off of me and not make problems for me? He's supposed to take care of these problems and not throw his workload on me. And believe me, Festus feels the heat related uh, to this. Now, uh, in verse 13, how he deals with it, we're told in verse 13, after some days, uh, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, they came to Caesarea uh, to greet Festus. This was kind of a meet and greet. Uh, king Agrippa was the king over a section of what we know today as Lebanon and the northern part of Israel. He reigned, uh, he reigned there at the pleasure of uh, Rome, and so Festus is now new to the neighborhood, and so they're going to do kind of a coffee clatch here, meet one another. He's going to, uh, Agrippa's come with his sister in order to welcome uh, Festus to the neighborhood and now uh, begin what they hope will be a long and uh, uh, fruitful and effective uh, relationship. Uh, the uh, Agrippa was an Idumean, that was he was a descendant of uh, Esau, of uh, Jacob and Esau fame, and he was, uh, importantly, very, very familiar as a result with Jewish law and uh, customs. And so uh, he comes now uh, with his sister to make this visit. Many days were told into the visit, verse 14, Festus mentions the case uh, to uh, uh, Paul's case to, uh, to Agrippa, and uh, I've got this leftover situation from Felix, He's, and uh, so over a period of many days, they're talking shop about a lot of different things. They finally come to a place where uh, in Festus's mind, Paul comes to mind, and he says, 
hey, Agrippa, let me bounce this thing off of you. I've got this headache, this mess that uh, Felix left. You understand the Jews and the law, uh, their laws and so forth in a way that I don't. And so uh, what do you think about this? And in verses 15 through 21, he presents the situation pretty clearly uh, from, from his perspective, and he didn't know how to proceed. And so, uh, Agrippa, you understand these people more than I do, and so uh, what, uh, what, what should I do here? What would be your recommendation? What, what can I do to find a suitable charge against this man before I, I, I send him uh, to Rome? And then Agrippa in verse 22, uh, somehow his interest is uh, stirred here, and he desires now to hear Paul for himself. In verses 23 to 27, Paul is then brought before King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. The crowd is uh, described there in uh, verse 23. I want to read it once again for you. And so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp uh, and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought uh, in. So this crowd is, is uh, put together here. It's assembled. It's, it's described. Paul is brought then into the midst of it. Festus then uh, informs the audience of the aim of the entire assembly. And he's very upfront. I mean, he's, he's, he's without guile. I mean, he's got a problem. He's created the problem, but uh, he readily kind of admits it, uh, that he's got to find a charge against Paul in order to send him uh, to Rome properly, and the uh, purpose of this entire hearing is order, in order to discover what that, uh, that charge might uh, be. And so the table is then set for Paul in the next chapter to uh, address this very, very prominent group, and uh, that address will have to wait until next week. This morning, I want to use our <clears throat> remaining time this morning to uh, take a note of, of a devotional uh, kind of application from the passage. And it's a devotional application that God brings to my mind every so often as I find myself in uh, comparable situations in, in my own life. And we all find ourselves in the situation that Paul finds himself in here on a daily basis, maybe not in the scope in which it's uh, represented here, uh, but it's still significant for our lives. And it helps me uh, and has helped me through the years, and perhaps uh, this uh, devotional application will be of help to you as well. I think it's important to take kind of a closer look at, at this um, the Holy Spirit's description of the pomp as he talks about it there in verse 23 of the scene of this uh, hearing. In terms of, uh, of the pomp, uh, you put yourself in a great Roman uh, room, a great Roman hall. Uh, Caesarea was a capital city for Rome. That did mean that it was a little bit of Rome away from Rome for the Roman soldiers and Roman citizens. And so it, the buildings that they built, the city that they built, it was a, a replica of Rome. It was beautiful. All of the marble columns, all of the marble floors and marble walls. And so you've got this great auditorium uh, and uh, marked by all of the 
wealth, all of the artisanship uh, of Rome, and uh, the sculptures, the colors, the fabrics. I mean, you walk in and not only is are there all of this white of, of the marble and so forth, but it would have been a sea of scarlet and purple and gold as well. We're told very specifically that King Agrippa and Bernice, they were ushered into the room with great pageantry and then ultimately seated. And then they were then followed by a parade of Roman military uh, commanders from the region and complete with all of their uniforms and, and their military garb and medals and so forth. And then they were followed by the prominent men of the city, all of the wealthy, all of the powerful, all of the uh, famous of, of the region. And as everybody's brought into the room and they're seated in their proper place, the entire room is absolutely buzzing uh, at the fact that we've been invited to this, buzzing with anticipation, buzzing with excitement. And it is this scene uh, that the Apostle Paul is then ultimately brought into. He's not brought into the room while that entire collection of people and all of that movement and all of that majesty is being brought in one layer at a time. It is all in its place by the time Paul is then brought in uh, to the room. And everything about the scene that you see there in verse uh, 23, everything about it was intended uh, deliberately to produce a certain reaction in uh, the person who was in Paul's shoes. And the entire intention of all of that pomp and all of that majesty, it was intended to overwhelm you. It was intended to leave you undone, to disorient you, to put you in your place without ever saying anything to you as you're brought into the room, to remind you who is the boss, to put you back on your heels. And most of all, the entire scene was intended to intimidate the man or the woman that would ever find themselves in Paul's place in that setting. The Greek word for pomp in verse uh, 23 is an interesting one, phantaxia. Uh, it is used only here in the New uh, Testament. However, uh, the Greek form of the word is, uh, is used uh, one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, where in that passage we have a description of the awe and the fear that Moses felt when he was confronted with all of the sights and the sounds that accompanied his receiving of the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. As it's described there in the verse, the burning fire, the blackness, the tempest, the trumpet sound. And you remember as, perhaps as that in that event in the Old Testament, and then as the writer of the book of Hebrews describes it, as, Paul was as Moses was confronted with all of this pomp, the pomp of God uh, there in the giving of the law of Moses, he, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, and so terrible was the sight, so terrible literally was the pomp, so terrible was the phantaxia that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And that is the very intention of all of the pomp that was brought forth in that room, was the intention that when Paul would come face to face with it, 
that it would produce within him an exceeding fear and cause him to quake. It is interesting to me that Paul's initial response to all of this, and it's recorded for us in chapter 26, verse 1, and, it, and I think it gives us this beautiful snapshot of Paul immediately upon receiving permission by King Agrippa to uh, speak there. And immediately uh, before he begins to speak, before he delivers what is his longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, we are told before a word comes out of his mouth that it, uh, words were not Paul's first reaction to the environment that he finds himself in the middle of. We're told that Paul, doubtless standing at this point, he began again not with words, but in action. We're told very specifically that he stretched out his hand, and then he proceeded to speak. His initial reaction to this scene of just physical and mental and emotional and sensory intimidation was to simply extend his hand and his arm out literally to uncoil it and presumably toward the king and everyone there within the room. And when you see this, what he does here, and as the Holy Spirit re records it for us here, you realize immediately this is not the action of someone who is intimidated in any way. This is not the action of someone who is fearful at all. This is the action, perhaps alarmingly for uh, Festus, but this is the action of someone who is completely comfortable in the environment that they're in. Someone who is completely at ease in that environment. It's the action of someone who has a sense indeed that they're in charge of the entire uh, environment that they're in. And you look at Paul, what was put up against him, and you see him as he conducts himself, even in the initial gesture that he makes, he is the picture of peace in this entire scene. And clearly, he's not intimidated by it at all. And so we ask ourselves, what is the source of his peace? What is the source of a lack of any intimidation at all in a scene that has been so carefully orchestrated to put him on his heels. And I would contend that it has its source in the fact that long before Paul had ever stood before the throne of King Agrippa on that day some 2,000 years ago, that he had that very morning spent time before a greater throne and a greater king. He had spent time before the throne of God and before God himself. The Bible teaches that there is always an afterglow upon our lives as a result of the time that we spend with God in prayer, in the study and in the reading of his word, in fellowship with him at the start of the day, in what we know as Christians and call a devotional time with God, a time in which our own personal relationship with God is nurtured, our uh, daily quiet time with God, as it's so often described.
And there is a discernible afterglow to the life of any Christian who spends that time with God, Paul included, us included. It's interesting as we remember in the Old Testament, Moses, that when he went into the tabernacle to meet with God face to face in that tabernacle uh, of meeting and meeting with God face to face, that's, uh, that's New Testament intimacy that Moses was uh, experiencing in the Old Testament. But that when he left, left that uh, tent of meeting and, and that time of fellowship with God, there was an afterglow upon his countenance and his face as a result. In other words, that time spent with God, it had a recognizable effect upon him. It produced a recognizable change in him. And in the same way, when we spend time with God in this same uh, way as Moses did, before his throne, to begin a day, quietly reading our word with him and, and, and in fellowship with him, praying with him, talking the day through with him, and, and so forth. As we spend time with him in this way, before his throne, it always produces a notable, noticeable change in, in effect in our lives as well. It changes us for good, and people recognize it. You remember that when Moses came out of the tent of meeting, and there was an afterglow upon his countenance as a result of it, he was completely unaware of it. But everybody else could see it. So often we spend time with the Lord in the morning and we get up from that place wherever it might be in our house or our apartment and we move on our way through the day and we don't notice the change that's occurred within our life. But everybody else uh, can notice it and notice that, that it has affected us in a way that makes us different than we would otherwise be without having spent that time. And in the same way, God notices, uh, people notice that difference uh, that occurs in our lives when we spend time with God and fellowship with him to begin the day, as opposed to those days when we don't. Can you believe that about yourself? I know you do, because I believe it about me. But there is a difference in my life there is a, difference, a different glow to my life. There is a different outflow of my life. I have a different countenance that I carry through the day. Uh, on the days in which I spend time with God to begin the day, and then those days in which I don't. And the difference is noticeable. I mean, sometimes I think if our coworkers, if they knew anything uh, about these things, they might even say to us, uh, you, you know, uh, whatever you did on Tuesday before you came here, you ought to do a lot more of that. Uh, because we haven't seen that person in two weeks. And we look back and we say, what did I do on that Tuesday? I spent time with God. It's noticeable. We recognize it recognize it related to our own lives and and certainly a husband or a wife recognizes it sooner than anyone and the children uh, only slightly uh, behind them uh, you haven't had your quiet time yet have you mom uh, or dad or whatever uh, it might be and i think we all know the difference uh, within our lives that difference of 
uh, of a day when we begin it with him and the days that we don't. And it's interesting that the afterglow that Moses experienced with God, that it faded. It faded as time passed. And so it required uh, being renewed uh, once time and again by again communing with God over and over again, meeting with God in that uh, tent of meeting, tabernacle of meeting, in order for this to remain a mark of his life. And in the same way, of course, uh, we need it to be renewed each and every day of our lives. Jesus taught us And when his disciples came to him and asked, uh, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, after this manner, pray. And a part of the prayer that he gave to them was, give us this day our daily bread. And there's the assumption in the prayer that as Christians, we will pray every single day, that that will be a part of our life, that it will a, a portion of each of our day will be spent in communion with God, in prayer with him, talking about the day that I'm about to enter into before I enter into it. But not only, it's interesting as he says, give us this day our daily bread, not only does Jesus assume that that will mark our lives as Christians, and it's a part of his instruction there, but it's also clear that he intends that that time be spent at the beginning of the day. Otherwise, he would say, pray after this manner, uh, uh, you know, thank you for the food you gave us this day. It's not an afterwards prayer. It's not an end of the day prayer. It's a beginning of the day. Uh, 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 prayer. And, and then the entire prayer as Jesus taught it, he said, after this manner pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so there is this relationship with God. We are meeting with him as our heavenly Father, but we are also meeting with him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're coming before his throne. There's that recognition that comes over us to realize that he rules the universe. He rules the day that I'm about uh, to head into. And in order to uh, gain that kind of of a perspective concerning the day long before I ever head into it and whatever kind of circumstance or meeting or hearing or uh, trial that we might uh, ultimately face in the course of that day. And there really is a glow of confidence and a glow of what, of winsome boldness, uh, the uh, a sense of an eternal perspective and love upon Paul's life in this scene. And it all came from time spent with God. And it's interesting that we find the same kind of imagery involved in the scene recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 12 where Mary of Bethany, on the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, she takes this uh, as an act of her own personal worship uh, toward Jesus. She takes this pound of very costly uh, spikenard, and she anoints Jesus' feet with it, that is, she pours it over his feet as he sat there. And then she proceeded to dry his feet from the oil with her very hair. 
And the result of this uh, worship that she performed related to Jesus and extended to him, the, the result was twofold. And that was, first of all, as we're told in the passage, that Mary then carried the fragrance of her act of worship and her time spent at Jesus' feet beyond that meeting, beyond the time at his feet. That fragrance of that spikenard was now on her, in her, upon her hair. She carried it with her then for the rest of the day and uh, probably even beyond. But we're further told that the house, as a result of the time that she spent worshiping Jesus and at his feet, was that the entire house was ultimately filled with the fragrance as well. And it's the same thing that's true of each of our lives. There's a fragrance that comes upon our life, and it is a fragrance that can only come this way, this spiritual fragrance. It, only, it is only imparted from that place uh, at the beginning of each day as we, as we begin it in this way of worshiping God, spending time before his throne, before we head out, before all of the petty and smaller thrones that we will stand before in the course of the day before us. And what is true of that, that fragrance of that oil of spikenard concerning uh, Mary of Bethany for the rest of that day and beyond and in a physical sense is true of us spiritually. We carry a spiritual fragrance upon our lives that is the afterglow of time spent with God. And Paul knew all about it, and he spoke about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Christ. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And, the, and that word knowledge there, it speaks of a knowledge that comes by experience. It, he is talking about a fragrance, a spiritual fragrance that we carry into each day as Christians as a result of the knowledge by experience, the experience that we have had with God in prayer and in worship and in uh, Bible reading to begin the day. And I think that one of the things that this teaches me, and I think it's important for all of us as Christians, is that if as Christians we want to live a life that is free of fear and intimidation and free of manipulation in a world that operates so much like verse 23, that operates uh, using fear and manipulation and intimidation and is, seems to be especially focused upon using it against Christians in its desire to silence our voices, to put us in our place, to intimidate us, to put us back on our heels. That's the environment that we live in today, spiritually speaking. And if we want to live a life of peace and a life of confidence and a life of joy, it can only be found in time spent each day before the greater throne of God, in preparation for the lesser thrones that each of us will face each day so that we might then keep those smaller th thrones in their proper perspective 
and it is the only way that it can happen. When Ronald Reagan was running for President of the United States against Jimmy Carter, many of you remember it, before one of the televised debates, uh, the newscasters were noticing how relaxed he was before the debate. And someone asked him if he was nervous at all. And he said, oh no, not at all. I've been on stage with John Wayne. <laughs> you see, when you've been on the greater stage with John Wayne, as a byproduct, you've been prepared for all of the lesser stages that you'll find yourself in, in life and in the course of a day. And so it is with time spent with God each day before the greater throne. And how important it is, these scenes of intimidation that come our way in which we long to represent God in the midst of that and not to be intimidated and not to be like the straw man and the Wizard of Oz in these kind of environments. And these things do naturally impact us. And so when there's going to be that job interview or there's going to be this meeting that's going to occur at work in our lives, or we're going to go before some kind of a, a council, whether it's school or whatever it might be, or to just stand before mom and dad or whatever the situation might be, and to realize that I'm heading before a lesser throne, but it's got me frightened. I don't know anything about peace here. This environment is going to be completely intimidate me. And I know that I'm not going to represent God well here. I'm going to be flustered and it's going to mess me up. And what in the world can I do before I go in there? And the most important thing at these kind of uh, events that occur within our lives is to take some time during that day or in the days that are preceding it and to take these things before the Lord, some hearing in a courtroom or whatever it might be, and to say, Lord, I don't want to leave this place, this chair that I sit in, that I meet with you each and every day, and I don't want to leave this place until I have some sense of the greatness of you and the greatness of this throne in contrast to the environment and the circumstance that awaits me later on this day or later on this week. And as we worship God and we commune with him and read his word and cry out to him for this great event between us and him to occur, for us to see the lesser thrones and the light of the great throne, and then to enjoy the peace that we see in Paul here, where he's not being manipulated or not backpedaling here, but he has a sense of confidence that can only come from God and a sense that he is in complete charge of the entire situation, at least the portion of it that he has control over, and that is to represent himself and God in that environment. And then when those kind of events come up to say, Lord, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to leave the TV off or whatever it needs to be turned off. I'm not going to read the newspaper. I'm not going to go online and see what happened in the world while I was sleeping. 
but I'm going to take this time because I desperately need to see my life right now in the context of your throne, in your perspective, and he will always be faithful to do that. Paul was a man just like you and me, man and, and woman. He was a person, a human being just like us. He didn't jump into phone booths and come out as super apostle before these kind of events. He was the person that he became, and he was the person in this environment because he accessed resources that are as available to us and will be as powerful in, in our lives at the moment of our need as ever they were for him. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, I don't think that I'm alone in this room and noticing how aggressive the world and the culture is becoming, what a bully it's become, how it operates off of fear and intimidation and showing one another who's boss and all of these power plays that go on. And Lord, we deal with it, as you know, as Christians, as every bit as much as anyone that doesn't know you in this world. And then on top of it, we face another layer that others do not. In this spiritual realm and the use of governments and people and, and corporations and institutions that go even beyond what they try to do in the average person within society to try and put us in our place as Christians, to silence us in all of these environments to cause us to toe the line, to be quiet or, or else, Lord. And we feel it. We feel the intimidation. We feel what it is that uh, is in some smaller way, perhaps, but still in a powerful way, we still feel the verse 23 in our own lives, what Paul experienced in that environment. And I pray and we pray that you would use this very simple lesson and this very simple reminder from your word in each of our lives this morning and that these times, Lord, where we're reacting rather than responding, where we're the ones that are just running, Lord, instead of standing, exhibiting anxiousness and fear instead of peace, that you would remind us from this passage this morning to come quietly before you and to regain perspective in the only place that it can be regained. And that is before you and at your throne and seeing the micro, Lord, in the light of the macro. And I pray and we pray for one another, Lord, that as we do so, that you would impart to us as fully, Lord, in our lives as we see what you imparted to Paul in this scene. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and as a Christian you say, you know, that time spent with God, I, it's been so spa uh, sporadic. It's never become a consistent part of my life. And and I'm on my heels all of the time. I'm always reacting. I don't have victory that marks my life. I have no perspective. I, I run from one 
fearful conversation and situation to another. I know nothing about Paul's piece here. And there, out in the literature racks in the fellowship hall, there's this thing called the daily bread. And it contains a devotional inside of it, one for each day of the week, and, through, and, and it goes through the year, and it gives you a system for reading through the Word of God in the course of a year. Pick one of those up, and don't wait until you feel like doing it. You have control over your feelings. I have control over my feelings. Do the right thing. And to begin to develop this particular dimension of the Christian life within your life, because there are things that are found there that are found no place uh, else. I am convinced that the Holy, as Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We desperately need this spiritual food. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit will not stop working in each one of our lives until that time with the Lord to begin the day becomes the most precious and most necessary part of our day. And sometimes how that happens is in a room like this where we sit and we look and we say, I'm like a ping pong ball in the, you know, or the pinball in the, in the pinball machine of, of life. And I'm tired of it. I want it to be a change that will occur. And, and then to hear that this is how it occurs and to begin Take advantage of one of those uh, daily breads and then begin that as a characteristic of your life and see if everything doesn't change as a result. If you stand here this, uh, this morning and you're not yet a Christian, uh, Christianity is about a personal relationship uh, between you and God that Jesus has made possible. But that relationship uh, can't be begun until your sin is addressed and it is forgiven. And that occurs by putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to pray with you to receive that forgiveness and to begin that relationship with God this morning. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving. Mike, will you close us?